0: Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver, about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your special guest host, Dele Johnson, podcaster, producer, editor, and radio host. Today, I'm joined by Denver-based artist, writer, and professor, R. Allen Brooks. What's up, Alan? Hello,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Oh, of course. (laughs) Familiar, but unfamiliar at the same time (laughs) a little bit for this show, particularly. (laughs) Um... Well, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who you are?
1: Yeah, we're just into the role reversal here. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, so uh I write comic books and graphic novels. I teach graphic novel writing at Regis University and Lighthouse Writers Workshop and a few other places. I just finished writing a movie script.
0: Wow, oh, yeah. congratulations. Like
1: 2 weeks ago I finished it, so this, Nice. Yeah. Um and, yeah, I'm just, I guess, an artist around town.
0: An artist around town, a man about town. <laughs> right. um, you, I definitely have seen you popping up in the media a little bit more lately. Oh, yeah. I, I find that exciting every time I see a new link or a new article or a new interview mm. uh, featuring you because, I, you know, I think you deserve all the recognition. Oh, thanks. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'd love to hear about maybe the first time art impacted your life? Hmm, That's a good question.
1: Now I'll say, I guess for people who are listening, uh, they should know that you are producer and editor of this podcast if they haven't heard your name before. But so we're both doing this role reversal. We're both getting into the roles that we're not comfortable in. Yeah. So this is an adventure for both of us. (laughs) Okay, so uh, art impacted my life. My father um, has always been really into books, and sci-fi shows and movies. Um and so I actually I guess it was comic books. Like his when I was five, he's a journalist, my dad. And
0: okay. I didn't know that.
1: He uh wrote for uh he ran the money section of USA Today for like thirty years. Mm,
0: so writing runs in the family. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh
1: and so when I was five, he wanted to encourage reading. And so he got me into comic books and he used to read comics when he was younger. He bought me The Flash.
0: And cool, my favorite hero,
1: yeah, I read uh, the it was uh it was a period where Barry Allen was on trial for murdering oh, the reverse flash, yes, so uh yeah, so that's when he got me into comics, and I think uh as someone who liked drawing and liked big words <laughs> uh none and of some onomatopoeia a little bit too right right. <laughs> None of that was really kind of like embraced uh, in my school community, but in comic books, I could have like all of that. Like I could have, you know, clever use of words and and good drawing, and it just really kind of drew me drew me in. No pun intended. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you grew up in the Atlanta area, right? Yeah. Uh, was there a certain shop that your dad would take you to uh, to get comics?
1: Well, okay. So actually, my I was uh, in Asheville, North Carolina when I was five. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my dad was the first business editor that their newspaper ever had. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there, I don't even know. It was probably like Seven Elevens and stuff like that. Mm. But my mother was from Atlanta, and we moved there when I was eight, and that's where I grew up. And so there was a one called Titans Comics. It was on Riverdale Road. And I grew up in between, I grew up in College Park and in Southwest Atlanta near Greenbrier Mall uh, for most of my life but Titans was like the one. My mom would drop me off there. I mean, my parents divorced when I was five, so mm. uh, and so he moved to D.C. Um, and then uh, well, he moved to Philadelphia, then D.C. But in Atlanta, my mom would drop me off at Titans and be like, uh, you can spend $20
0: or whatever. Wow, that, yeah. f- that feels like a high budget.
1: It was good. And then she would come back like an hour later and it would be like such a math thing. I would, like, I would have a stack and I'd be like, uh, can I get this, no but if I don't get this one, then I can afford these other two, you know? Yeah. I almost never bought independent comics back then because they were uh, more expensive and black and white. Mm. And I was like, if I can buy two copies of X-Men instead of buying, you know, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever. Yeah. Uh, So it's only as an adult that I started reading a lot of those comics that I didn't buy when I was a kid. There was one called, there was an independent comic called X-Mutants. And they definitely were trying to get trick us into buying like X Men fans.
0: Yeah, yeah, a little bit of bait. Yeah. Like it uh and it had
1: nothing to do. They were just it was just called X Mutants and mm-hmm. it was like uh I don't even remember who printed it, but it was a black and white comic and I bought like one or two and I was like, What is this? But you know, <laughs> it fooled me at nine years old.
0: Yeah. Only only for a short time though it <laughs> right, sounds like right. Yeah. I saw through the scam. <laughs> um did you have a favorite book at that time?
1: Yeah, you know, X-Men was my favorite for a long time.
0: Yeah. Uh
1: it was the Dark Phoenix saga like right after that period. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so where before Wolverine was everywhere and on every team and you know, like he was a sort of the underdog and I liked him a lot. But the first books I got uh subscriptions to was before I got into X-Men. My mom was like um she you know, in, in Marvel Comics used to do their own subscriptions, like you would order and they would send it out to your house. Mm-hmm. And so they had, but they only, you could only choose from maybe eight titles. And so uh, my mom was like looking at the cost and she was like, okay, you can subscribe to two books. And so I subscribed to Avengers and Defenders
0: Oh, the defenders! Yeah, I I like the defenders yeah. as a team. I know there's there's been some rotations over the years, but right. And the TV show is atrocious. But oh, <laughs> it, it did not do it did not do the team justice. It felt like
1: B roll from all the other shows. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in my and you know, so I would have been like maybe nine or ten then, and in my mind at that age, I was like. These teams have the most superheroes, so for this amount, I can get the most superheroes. Yeah, and more I'd, bang for your buck. Right, and I didn't even care about Avengers or Defenders. I was just like, most superheroes. And but then when I got it, I you know I had a year of reading both of those
0: comics, and I really dug them. Cool. Yeah. Uh, at that time, did you have ambitions? Did you have dreams about becoming a comic book writer or artist?
1: Oh, that you know, it's interesting because yeah, I wanted to draw comics. Um, And I, you know, I drew comics all the time in school and uh, art teachers used to insult comics and they hated the fact that I drew them. Um, But I had one good art teacher in eighth grade, Mrs. Carnes. And um, she was basically, she was introducing me to Renaissance artists and she was like, in the whole class, she was like, this is Albrecht Durer. Alan, if you were a Renaissance artist, this is who you would be. And it
0: (laughs) was that supposed to be a compliment? It was. It super got me into him. Okay. Uh,
1: So he's most known for like uh, drawing like the praying hands that you Mm. see all the time. But like he did a lot of woodcuts, but they look like comic book illustrations. And uh, also, he signed his name with like uh, an A and then a D underneath it, where it was all together. Like the the top of the D formed the crossbar and the A. Mm. So then I started signing, like Alan Brooks, I started signing in my name like that, you know? Yeah. Um, But she she was um, sensible and respectful enough to see what I was interested in and give me a connection to the artist that came before it. Then suddenly, like, I was interested in it, you Mm -hmm. know? And so she was cool, but for the most part, my art teachers were garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was such an interesting... So I basically... Was thinking I was going to draw comics until about twelve when I got more into hip hop, um, and honestly, rapping. So comics were not cool during that period. Like they weren't right. That yeah. was
0: was the what the nerds yeah did right, and nerd wasn't a positive thing back then, right? And right, and yeah. you were in Atlanta, yep, which is you know uh, a black mecca in yeah. in many ways, and you know. Blurred was not a thing <laughs> nope. at all back then.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. So like uh I did not know any white people, the occasional teacher here and there, but it was all black city. And I only had one other friend who was in the comics who went to a different school. We're still friends, but like it meant that he and I could only talk about comics sometimes. And other than that, we would go we would go years without meeting anybody else who liked comic books. Yeah. Um with the exception of when we would go to comic book conventions. And comic book conventions back then were like, I went to my first one when I was 10. It would be like 300 people at the most. Mm-hmm. You know, now they're like 100,000, but oh yeah. yeah. But like uh, maybe 300 people, and we would be the only kids and the only black people, period. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I mean, people were very nice and they embraced it, but it was, you know, it was rare that we could talk to people about comic books. On the other hand, hip hop, you know, 11 or 12 years old, when I started rapping, uh, everybody thought I was cool. Uh, girls talk to me more, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so there was just a different level of uh, engagement. Right. And I loved hip hop for some of the same reasons because it was a lot of like clever words, wordplay, um, things that would be considered dad jokes if you put them in a battle rap, then suddenly people like them. It's
0: right. kind of a yeah. weird thing.
1: But it's the same like uh, engine of wordplay is used in battle raps that are used in puns, mm-hmm. you know. um, Yeah, so then I just drew in my spare time, but like became more of a reader of comics, and like hip hop was like my life.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It became that cornerstone yeah. for you, um, and you know, at the at those times, finding your identity, finding a place to belong, mm-hmm. uh, is really important. So it, it's interesting that hip hop and music was what really kind of made you I don't know if it is is like a security thing or you know it made you feel yeah maybe a a level of confidence um what was what was your number one song to listen to at that time do you do you remember or even an artist
1: well I was deep into native tongues which I know you are oh yeah 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 Uh, so De La Soul but like De La Soul was like my pinnacle group Mm -hmm. uh, because they were so themselves but my top like my favorite rappers when I was young When I was really young, it was Kumo D.
0: Yeah, Uh, one of the OGs. Yeah,
1: I feel like he uh, made a mistake by investing too heavily in New Jack Swing. (laughs) So like,
0: which is a great period of time. I (laughs) I love New Jack Swing, but it it didn't last.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the beats that he was rapping to don't like you don't really hear people play his songs much anymore. But he Mm -hmm. was much more lyrical than like he was very advanced lyrically. But after him, it was uh, Rakim, Slick Rick, and News from De La Soul. Those were like my top three. And um yeah, so but you know, I would have been like fifteen when De La Sole Dead came out. So I was, you know, young teenager sort of finding my identity and mm-hmm. the native tongues was like a place, um, like the music that they created was a vibe. It was a whole vibe that I felt like I found myself in it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really dope. Um, and I think I carry that along for a long time. They, didn't, they weren't really battle rappers, but because uh, I still love battle rapping.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember when I was like, uh, I went to college early. I went to college when I was 16. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, I came out when I was 19. And then I came back to Atlanta, and I was like sneaking in the clubs to battle. Yeah. Like, I didn't even care about dancing or talking to women. It was just like, I just wanted to battle. To battle, yeah.
0: yeah. You wanted to get those bars off. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I did okay. Like, um, I usually, I usually, usually won. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There was one dude, though. There was one dude uh, back in the day. There were two dudes that I definitely lost to. One was called Soldier, and there was another dude called uh, Warlock. And uh, I remember Warlock in particular. He was not dope, and I was just like handling him. <laughs> he went out and got high, and came back, and suddenly he was dope, which <laughs> has never been true with anybody oh, else I've no. Like anybody else, performance had, enhancing drugs, <laughs> right? <laughs> but anybody else i battle that like goes and gets high, they get whacker. They think they get doper because they're high. But yeah, they get whacker. But him, uh, he says something like, "I say the things you never say. I jump in a time machine and battle you yesterday." Like he just had a lot of like. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that, however many years later
0: yeah um, i mean I, that that's a great line yeah that is a great line especially
1: freestyling but i don't even yeah i wonder what happened to that dude <laughs> yeah but it was a lot of fun it was a lot of that was like most of my 20s and early 30s was like getting in every battle rap i could getting every battle i could be in and um working to make an album and i went on like small tours and stuff like that you know but uh, as evidenced by the fact that probably nobody listening has ever heard of me as a rapper, you see, it only, <laughs> it only went so far. <laughs>
0: um. So two questions. Um. One was battling your no, your primary performance outlet, and then two, what was your moniker? What What did oh. you go by when you were <laughs> when you were battling? I
1: went through a few actually, but uh, okay. So I battled in battles. But like when I'm performing like in front of a crowd, they're not usually trying to hear that, you know, they wanna hear songs about different things, so so then I would do songs. But uh, when in my 20s I was the fisherman, um, and I, I grew up in a church in the south and it came from like, be fishers of men, Jesus saying that. Uh, and so that was the name that I used and I would yeah, I would rap and battle under that name. But then uh later it became Soul Daddy, which was more um
0: I like that one.
1: <laughs> right on. <laughs> that was more people uh how people reacted to like my voice and my presence and all that stuff, you know, like people always said I was like an old soul and that kind of thing. And so uh so, you know, when I moved to Denver, um, that's that's the name that I really went by. And, all the albums that I that are like on Spotify or whatever are under Soul Daddy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might have to go look into that. <laughs> right. It'll change uh, your life. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've talked a little bit about your early passions in comics. You've talked about uh, some of your hip hop experience. I, I'm sure that there's more that I'll want to dive into, but um, I remember – my first time ever encountering you, and we I don't even think we ever exchanged words, but was at goodness, at the metal arc, on the back patio, and just seeing you going all out, dripping sweat from dancing. <laughs> and so I want to know when dancing kind of came into your life, how you started channeling yeah. your energy into that form of expression.
1: You know, it's an interesting thing with me and dancing, man. Uh, so, I mean... In the 90s with hip hop, there were obviously like those like gymnastic kind of dances that everybody would do, the jumps and flips and spins. Yeah,
0: yeah, and break dancing. Yeah, Uh,
1: I learned a little of that stuff. But like, um, I have this distinct memory of being like 12 years old. My mom uh, took me to a party, like a party of her friend's children. So like, we're all like 12-ish, you know, like in the basement, they got music playing and all of us are too nervous and insecure to dance. And my mom was like, What are y'all doing? Y'all need to get this started. And she starts dancing <laughs> and making everybody dance. You know? Okay. And so, uh, I mean, so it's obviously in my genes. hmm My dad, my dad knows one dance <laughs> that he can do uh very <laughs> well from the seventies. It's called the penguin. If you if anyone wants to look up the penguin on uh on YouTube, it, you'll see it on Soul Train. It's a it's a Okay, because that's what I was gonna say. Like is <laughs> yeah. a, is this the Soul Train it classic? Is. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. But okay, so uh but in college I danced a little here and there, but basically after college, I think I quitted dancing with like clubs, like trendy clubs, Mm -hmm. um, which I hate. You know, like those kind of places where you ain't gonna get in here with these shoes, dude. You know, that kind of stuff, right? And I'm like, all right, so I'm gonna pay you 20, $30 to get in and you're gonna approve my garb You know, like it it just all seemed offensive to me. Yeah. And then when you get in, like. um, Nobody's dancing,
0: you know. Yeah. Everyone wants to look cool. Everyone's posted up at the bar. Yeah. And their clicks. Right. At tables. You got it.
1: Yeah. So basically for all of my 20s, I didn't dance. Um, And then uh, my early 30s. I started realizing I would go to like there was like a Afro Afro-blue thing that would happen here in Denver mm. um, that I started going to. And I was like, oh yeah, I love dancing. Like I didn't realize it because it had been, because I think it was just associated to me with the the back club experience. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, there are places that you can go to dance that are not those places. And so uh, then I started going to this Motown night, uh, DJ Miggy. He yeah. Would, yeah, he would do that one. Uh, and when I first started going, it was like four of us. But then it, you know, like proliferated to a whole grows, bunch of people. Yeah. yeah, and then I started going to Solution at Arc and Goodness, and uh, I just started making it a part of my life. And I realized that, and, and so I got to a point where I was dancing like two to four times a week. But I, I realized that it was like cathartic to my soul. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it felt like, and I guess I, you know, come to think of it, when I was younger, I would dance in church. I was, you know, I mentioned I was involved in church. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, like, the same kind of dancer, obviously. But I think just the um, connection of... Yeah, the movement, something spiritual, you know, like, all of that is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting that you say that about us not talking at goodness, right? Because this is basically my experience with everybody. Because I, uh, one, I'm an introvert. Yeah. Uh, so I don't do well at, like, the small talk at the dancing venue. But, two, I don't drink. So, basically, I just go straight to the dance floor and I unless you come to the dance floor, we don't talk, right? Right, right. So I end up knowing people for, like, years and having no idea what their voices sound like. Yeah. You know, because you're just, just, you're out there dancing. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And if they want to come into my arena, then, you know, we could talk. But, like, (laughs) you know, I'll I'll see people, like, you know, uh, even on the show it comes up a lot. Like, there are people that I, like, oh, we first met dancing. Yeah. But we've never really had a conversation because we just know each other from the dance floor.
0: Yeah. But. Where you express yourself with body language right. and not words.
1: Yeah, and I just love it. It's I, I really love it. It's a beautiful thing. Uh I think anything that I mean obviously it's a good form of exercise, but anything that's heavy on my soul, if I can just lose myself in dancing, um it is it's just beautiful. And I think as a result of that, I don't really dig um I don't dig group dances like I I don't I don't know, electric like, slide.
0: Like choreographed, yeah. or, oh, okay, like electric slide, <laughs> yeah. cupid shuffle, yeah. what have you. I let everybody do that,
1: you know, and it's fine. Like, you guys enjoy it, but yeah. like, uh for me, having to, like, regiment what I'm doing actually reduces my um, enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. And also, um, although I don't mind being on a dance floor and people sort of paying attention to what I'm doing, that is not the goal. So You don't
0: want to be the center yeah. of attention. So, so like... If there's a dance circle happening, you got it. I always leave. Yeah, it's, that's that's when you're like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm out. I'm People out.
1: are constantly trying to push me in their dance circle or force me to do their soul train line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, you guys got that, you know? But mm-hmm. that's just not, it's, it, it's I don't know, it's not the pure experience for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I uh, as as a kid, I, soul train lines would form at mm-hmm. these like African parties that we would be at where you know, the adults are having their party and the kids may end up having their own separate party somewhere else. And I always loved the Soul Train line, but I never wanted to get into dance circles. It felt more Uh, performative. And I think that the the dance circles for me always happened at like homecoming dances and like high school and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Nevada. I went to a predominantly white school. I didn't want to perform for these kids. But- at, at African parties when, you know, everyone is black and brown and we're all coming from the same culture, yeah, it felt more comfortable and we would be in Soul Train line form rather than like yeah. the enclosed ring of of a dance circle. That is a whole
1: other thing. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, being in an all-black city dancing amongst other people of color, it does not feel like they're waiting for you to entertain them, you know? Right. But, everyone uh, just
0: wants to... Express themselves. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: But sometimes dance circles and white spaces is very, it just makes me think of like step and fetch it. Like I'm not here to entertain you, you know? Like mm-hmm. I, uh, but anything that moves it from an expression of my joy to performance makes me enjoy it less. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, you know, nobody could hire me as a dancer because that's not something I'm interested in. Yeah. It's just about like releasing my soul. So that's why the dance circles and soul train lines like I'm, I understand that they're communal, and that's why I support other people doing them. Mm-hmm. And I and I like being there and cheering people on. Yeah. But the Might problem, even pick up a move or two. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but the the problem is, is that when I stand there and cheer people on, then they're like, "You got to be part of it too," you know. Yeah. So I'm just like, All right, I'll bounce. Ah, uh, no, I'm
0: here as a spectator <laughs> purely. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> but they, you know, they just saw me on the floor doing like Michael Jackson spins or something. Yeah. And then they're like, "Now nah, you don't want to dance." Yeah. So i yeah. like, I get their reaction, but it's just not for me.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Totally understand that. Yeah. Um. So we've talked about comics and and hip hop and dancing um but there there was a point in time where you were not a professional mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. Um and you know through various episodes I've gotten to hear bits pieces. and pieces yeah. of the story. I could put the puzzle together, huh. but now is my opportunity to <laughs> to really ask you how You began your journey as a professional writer.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: The whole story happens here. Yeah.
1: Okay, so when I was younger, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And uh, I would draw all the time. And like I said, hip-hop kind of waylaid me. So in terms of my development as a visual artist, it probably stopped when I was 15. Um, And so I just didn't draw for a lot of years. Um, But... With music, as I mentioned, I got to the point where I was doing a few tours. I got to the point where I, in Denver, I would do like 50 shows a year, and I would have jazz musicians backing me. Um, so usually a bass player, keyboard, a Rhodes player, um, and a drummer, and then sometimes other things. But So I, I had to generate enough money at gigs that I could pay them and pay myself. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I was doing that for a few years, and it was going well. Um, but I had a few musicians who were like negative souls I guess Mm. you know like they were paying their rent off of my gigs but would still show up and be mad you know like yeah like I would like book the gig design a poster send out the email list print the posters put the posters all over town uh, do the management with the uh, venue to Mm -hmm. make sure like where we, we get paid and and you know, basically, all they had to do was show up to occasional rehearsal and gigs and get yeah. paid. And since they're jazz musicians, they could largely improv. So there wasn't like a lot of weight on them, mm-hmm. and they would still just be like, you know, dicks about everything. So <laughs> uh, it kind of wore me down after a while. Yeah. And so uh, around 2012, I was I was working I was working a day job at like a student loan place, something like that. I don't know. But uh I quit that job and then w- with these musicians, I was like, man, for all of this pain and aggravation, I could work a square job and make some real money. hmm So I picked the most square thing that I could pick, which was <laughs> insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh started a an insurance agency and I was selling like home and auto insurance. It was the first time I worked a job where it was pure commission. Um, yeah. So it so taught me. Like, you only
0: get out of it what you put into yes, it. Yes, right. Yeah.
1: So it taught me a different kind of the hustle, but it taught me that I could survive doing that. I didn't yeah. have to like work on somebody's day job necessarily. Right. Um, but the company I was working for at first were very dishonest. So I quit and went to another insurance agency. and I moved to health insurance, and they were really cool. They were actually probably the coolest as far as jobs go, coolest group of people I'd ever worked with. Um, but it was the only period in my life where I wasn't doing any art, and I was feeling like sort of empty. And there was this there's this thing with health insurance, right? When you sit down with somebody with health insurance, you're like, "Hey, uh, this is the policy." They'll say, "Well, um, can I take this off and save money?" And I'll say, "Well, if you take this off, if something happens, you will not have this coverage." Oh, I don't need that. I'll be fine. And I'd be like, okay, it's up to you, you know. Um, so they would take it off. And then invariably, six months later, a year later, they would that thing would happen. They wouldn't have coverage. And they would call me furious, right? Now, even though intellectually I know it wasn't my fault because they chose to take it off and I explained it to them, emotionally it was hard for me to have people angry with me over something that I don't care about. I don't care about insurance. Like if you're angry with me about, like, my belief in human rights, okay. You know, but you're mad at me about insurance? It was just, so it was taking its toll on me. So I basically did insurance from 2012 to 2016, and then 2016, I was like, I can't do it anymore. So I was at this point where I had to like determine, okay, what is my life gonna be? Um, If I have to choose between these two extremes, one extreme is being wealthy and unhappy, and the other extreme is being happy and maybe poor, which would i choose now that answer is not the same for everybody but for me it was i would rather be happy and possibly poor so i shut down the insurance agency and i was like what was my first love
0: comic books all the way back to yeah. those, those days at Titans. Yes, right. Yes. Oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the easy way for me to remember that is because Titans is one of my favorite super teams. Ah, so. uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that one now. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, I went to Europe for a month, and uh, I traveled by myself, and I had like some anxiety about it. I was like, I don't know how these countries feel about black people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether they're going to like me as a person, period. But I went to Berlin- Budapest, Prague, and London, and in all those places, I visited comic book stores. I went to a convention in uh, West England in a tiny town called uh, Melksham. Yeah, which is near Bath or Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And at that convention, that was like the conventions I went to as a kid. It was like two hundred people or something. Yeah, and they heard me talk, and they were like, "You're an American? Why are you here? You know, like you came for this, (laughs) you know." But it was uh and then in berlin i i uh talked to the guy who owned the three biggest comic book the biggest comic book store chain there
0: um, mm.
1: it was just cool like it was cool to connect with people internationally over something that I had always loved
0: mm-hmm.
1: um in in London, I went to a comic book museum uh in Prague I went to a comic store i I went to a bar that was a comic book museum
0: oh. And I like that.
1: Yeah, I was just walking through the town square yeah. and they had a sign that said Bar and Comic Book Museum. And I was like, huh? And it turned Quite out. Quite the combination. Right. Yeah. Turned out there was this artist, a Czech artist from the 70s, and they just had all of his paintings in there, but it looked like 70s style, like Conan the Barbarian illustrations. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool. So it was all his art. Mm hmm. Um, And in Budapest was the only place I did not buy any comics in that language because the guy who owned that store was a dick. (laughs) uh, But, yeah, so all of that was, I was like, this is what makes me happy, you Mm -hmm. know. So I decided to do, like, a Kickstarter, and I worked with this artist, um, Dion Harris, and a colorist, uh, Matt Strackbine. And so I wrote a script. It was my first time really writing a script. Uh, I've been listening to some writer's podcasts and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. read a couple of books. And the book that came out of it, first of all, we were trying to raise 8400 on Kickstarter. Um, and we raised like 16000 Oh, wow. Yeah, which nobody ever gave me money for my rap stuff. So I really yeah. <laughs>
0: I didn't expect it. And ma- pr- not, be, not to that total. Yeah, right. right. Five figures. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and and like when I was looking, like, Somebody shared it in the alumni group from my college on Facebook uh-huh. that I was not a part of because I'm not, you know, a joiner. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kept seeing all these names pop up and I was like, what? I haven't talked to them in years. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. like all of that was really cool and um, inspiring that all these people sort of invested in me in this way, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but so that book was called The Burning Metronome. Um, I Have a copy. Ah, right on. Yeah. It's out of print now. <laughs> We're gonna have to get it back, but it sold out when I did the TED Talk. But jumping ahead. Okay, so Freddie <laughs> Metchinho. Uh so it took like uh six months to get out. I did do a soundtrack in the meantime to keep Thai people over, so that's free on YouTube. Like it's uh, instrumental music by uh this brother Lavelle. And uh I rap on two songs, and all the rest is just instrumental Neo So jazz with actors saying lines of dialogue here and there mm. over the music. And yeah, so it's just like a free mix on YouTube. Yeah. Um but so okay, so that book comes out, um, and I start doing conventions and I start traveling to every convention, trying to meet all the editors at Marvel and DC image comics, you know. Yeah.
0: The the big names. Yeah.
1: And uh, you know, they all shrugged at me, which is fine. <laughs> and then uh the somebody at Regis University mm-hmm. got a copy of the burning metronome and uh, invited me to teach in their master's program
0: now off the strength of yeah, the burning metronome yeah, just never met it. you yeah don't know anything about you except for that book It's well they read it and they invited
1: me to teach a seminar first so okay. I think they could see how I do okay yeah and then and we'll uh, a
0: trial run then. yeah which I didn't know I didn't yeah. know that that was
1: a trial I thought they were just inviting me to do a seminar yeah and then I did a seminar and then they were like I want to talk to you about teaching and I was like uh, really, you know? Yeah, I, I've never taught before. Yeah, so uh, so that book made me a professor, uh, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And then, um, then also around that time, uh, the Denver Post was having troubles because uh, a hedge fund mm-hmm. bought the Denver Post, and so yeah. they cut the staff by two thirds. Uh, the journalists were like picketing outside the building. I remember. Because, yeah, yeah. Uh, so some of them left and started their own paper, called the Colorado Sun. Yeah, um, and they kind of like checked around for like who's a comic book person in Denver, and they found me. Uh, and one of the, one of the two founders, well, actually, I met both founders the first time. We met at Mutiny and Mutiny Information Cafe. Yeah, and um, they were like, "Hey, we're starting this paper. Uh, we want to know if you're interested in doing a comic for it." And I was like, "Give me a week." And so I came up with a pitch for it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had never written, like, a weekly comic. Yeah. And I, I was, like, nervous about how, how short. Because, you know, I had written this long form thing. Yeah. But, like, you know, the weekly comic is, like, you get, like, one. Like, I, I do one page. Some people yeah. do three panels. I don't even know how.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> but, and, yeah. I mean, gosh, even some, you know, newspaper comics is maybe even one or right. two panels. Right, like Side or, yeah, like yeah. The, the
1: classic one, well, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But. Uh, but I pitched this thing called "What I Miss." Um, the premise is basically a black man in his twenties, his white neighbor. She's in her fifties. She was in a coma for thirty years. Hence the name, <laughs> "What I Miss." Uh, ah, yeah. okay. Uh, and they. I don't
0: know if I was ever aware of that uh, detail. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: So that's like uh, there was the only reason I could think of of why they would be just Out of talking about things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but we've moved away from that. Uh, in the years since, like, it's there, but it's not like, it's not, it's not so much him filling her in, it's just their friendship, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But the reason I chose them is because if you have a short burst once a week, that means you can only really have, like, one or two main characters. Mm -hmm. And if the main characters are the same demographically, like, if they're both black, then it becomes a black comic, or if they're both Mm -hmm. women, it becomes a woman, you know? So I thought, well, if I get two characters who are um, sort of uh, who are demographically opposites, opposites then um, it makes for more enriching conversations that can come from different perspectives.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: so, you know, we've been doing that. Uh, I think we're, like, hitting five years on that. And that comic is won. Oh, and Corey Redford is the artist on that one. Okay. Yeah, she's really dope. And uh, we've won two journalism awards for it. Wow, congratulations. Thank you, which is... When I got the first one. I was like, I didn't know I was a journalist, but <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about the first the first so it's from the Society of Professional Journalists. My father is uh, I'm doing air quotes for people who are listening. He's uh, retired <laughs> from journalism. He retired from USA Today, uh-huh. but he's still writing. Like he wrote he wrote a column for uh, Washington Post and does stuff for National Geographic and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So when I got the journalism award from the Society of Professional Journalists he got a journalism award from the Society of Professional Journalists like a few weeks later. Yeah. Yeah, and I just thought that was like dope and hilarious. Yeah,
0: I think that's kind of beautiful. Yeah,
1: and it happened around Father's Day. So yeah. that was kind of cool. Yeah. Perfect. And I'm named after him. So uh, I go by my middle name, but he's uh, uh, Rodney Allen Brooks. Okay. Yeah.
0: So that's always been burning question for <laughs> What's me. What's the R? Yeah. Or, or more so, yeah, why oh. the... The R, Allen, and I, I wondered if it was maybe just, you know, you're classing it up a little bit as a as a professional <laughs> writer now, um, you know, so many writers who go by, like when initials, initials uh, yeah. or some variation. Well,
1: I mean, really, practically speaking, like uh, most of my life it was just Allen Brooks, but in order, yeah. uh, but it's such a common name, so yeah. in order to be Googleable, mm-hmm, <laughs> I use my first initial, so R yeah. Allen Brooks. Suddenly, you can Google me.
0: Yeah, and yeah. top result. Right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because if you go Alan Brooks, like, uh, it's countless. Yeah. And there's also a more famous Rodney Brooks than both me and my father. He's like a robot, robotic scientist. Oh. Yeah. And so, like, if I was going to be Rodney Brooks, that guy would beat both of us, you know? Yeah. 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 So. But, yeah. So, uh, the comic happened, and then uh, it's just led to other things. You know, like, it's led to this podcast. It's led to uh, um, the TED Talk that I did. Mm-hmm. It, it's led to me having stuff in the Denver Art Museum. All these things that I never would have thought were possible. Yeah. Especially with comic books.
0: Yeah. It's opened up a whole new world. Yeah. So maybe let's let's go a little bit into that now. You have uh, you have work on view in the Denver Art Museum. Yes.
1: Which in true rapper fashion I want to dedicate to all my hating ass art teachers <laughs> from when I grew up. <laughs> okay, so uh Lauren Thompson at the Denver Art Museum, uh, very cool person, she reached out to me when they were renovating their Martin building. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they wanted to do a Western section, and then they wanted to have another section that was specifically Black Western. And so her idea was like, um, it would be cool to have a comic that tells the story of Nat Love. Mm-hmm. And so she asked around, and some people at the museum, here's another dance floor connection, A guy that I know from Motown, Mm -hmm. uh, his wife works at the museum. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, Alan is the one. Yeah. And so that came from the dance floor. Yeah. Uh, So Lauren reached out to me. We talked about what we could do. And so um, I read Nat Love. So Nat Love's a cowboy from the 1800s. there was a fictionalized version of him in the Netflix movie, The Heart of They Fall.
0: Yes. yeah, Love that movie. Yeah, it was I funny. found that really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's funny, we didn't know about it, but the exhibit opened at the same time. That the much, movie was yeah, releasing. Oh. Yeah, which was just a funny coincidence. Yeah. But so I read this dude's autobiography. It's a public domain now, so you could just download it. And uh, it's really fascinating because it was during a period where cowboys were selling their stories. That's what the term tall tales uh, mm. come from that. Yeah. So basically, cowboys were living their life. People in New York were telling the stories of cowboys. And mm-hmm. cowboys were like, they're making money off our stories. We yeah. need to start telling our own stories. Yeah. Um, but they're known for exaggerating. Um, right. Because that's kind of like what they were doing. Like That's what they were supposed to do in a sense. They right. They are trying to top each, re- each other. Yeah. So when you read Nat Love's autobiography, you don't know how historically accurate it is mm-hmm. um and so at first i was getting caught up in that but then i was like eh, this is this is the autobiography a different art museum is not like a history museum like right i'm just gonna i'm just gonna tell the story as yeah, he told it it's not
0: it. museum of nature and science yeah yeah
1: right so uh then i was like but they can only afford to pay me for maybe like seven or eight pages because mm-hmm. um, it drawing a comics page takes like 12 to 20 hours, depending on what you're doing on each Mm -hmm. page. Um, Mm -hmm. So I read his book, and I had to distill it down to like six or seven big moments. Yeah. And uh, layout-wise, I was looking at this this Jim Steranko. He's a Marvel Comics artist from the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really known for doing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But he did this story called uh, Outland, which was an adaptation of a Sean Connery movie, uh, where it's uh, in, why I, there's port. It was landscape, portrait versus landscape. Yeah. So he drew yeah. it in landscape. Um. So it looks epic, like a movie. It's, yeah. Everything is
0: uh, very cinematic. Yes. And
1: I, so I, I took that for inspiration. I think his is way better than mine. Just so you know, but <laughs> um, but he do he would do like one big image and then smaller inset panels to like give other details. And I thought that was a great way to tell that love story. Yeah. So um, so I did that. Um worked on it a few months, and so they it's a permanent exhibit in the museum um basically until they rent changed the building again so mm-hmm. it's on a touch screen there and uh it was just it was just beautiful it was touching you know like yeah uh it opened um that well two years ago now because we're in twenty twenty three who can believe it <laughs> right <laughs> uh and my best friend that I mentioned who was in the comics when I was a kid, he flew into town for the mm-hmm. opening. So yeah, was, wow. Yeah, so it was that's, great to have him there. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, my mother and father didn't travel at the time because they were still concerned about COVID. Sure. But my mother came in 2022. Yeah. So she got she to see
0: it. She sat in on a recording of the show yes, as well. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, I forgot
1: you met her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she got to see it. And then uh, my dad is coming in February, so he's going to see it. Cool. But uh, so that went well. Then uh, a year later, which was last year, uh, they approached me again about a exhibit that they had opening called Saint Sinners, Lovers and Fools. It was Flemish art from the 1500s. um, Largely religious iconography, but in that art. So, okay, uh, I was thinking like, what's the not long-winded way? All right, so. (laughs) In the Bible, the three kings, you know. Yes. Okay, hey, so... Hey,
0: and today is January 6th, which is Three Kings Day. Oh, I didn't know it that, It is actually. a Christian holiday. It oh, wow. It does mark the end of the Christmas period. So, most very uh, orthodox or yeah. traditional Christians would celebrate from the 25th to the 6th. Huh. Yeah.
1: Okay, so it's not just Insurrection Day.
0: No, it's not just <laughs> Insurrection Day, although... The two aligning maybe (laughs) makes more sense. Right. Okay, so uh,
1: in the Bible itself, they're not called kings. It doesn't say there are three of them. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just called the magi, and we don't know how many there are. Um, Theologians think that people decided it was three kings because they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mm. But uh, the Bible does not say anything about three kings. In Christian lore, over the next hundred years, they... They just decided they were kings, and they gave them names. Uh, one of them was supposed to be an African king named Balthazar. And Christian art, for the next 1,500 years or so, they painted this African king as a white person with a black servant.
0: Oh, what a surprise. Yeah.
1: So this art for this exhibit at the Denver Art Museum was some of the first art to ever show him as a black person.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And So so uh, when Lauren was reaching out to me from the Denver Art Museum about it, she's basically like, um, I think it would be interesting to do something with Balthazar. Mm-hmm. Like, what might his story be, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. And so she was like, so you just think about it. And, you know, so I thought about it and I pitched her a story. Yeah. And uh, she dug it. And so this, the approach I took basically was like, Balthazar appears in the present day. And he gets to reflect upon, like he gets to see the centuries of art that depicted him as white. Mm-hmm. But he also gets to tell the story of meeting the infant Christ from his perspective, mm-hmm. specifically, mm-hmm. Um, which I, I've never seen. Um, so that's the story that I told. And again, they only had money to pay me for like seven pages or something. So I did, yeah, yes, yeah, so I did a pretty short story. But uh, in drawing that story, I've never drawn so
0: many camels. <laughs> in my life. i was like I, if
1: i never have to draw another camera seems
0: like a tricky animal of, <laughs> right. of all the animals as well oh man
1: it was all kinds of like photo references for that oh surely yeah,
0: like uh but uh we not drawing it like campbell joe off the cigarette <laughs> right, tank, right right <laughs> <laughs> no, no sunglasses <laughs> cigarettes yeah <laughs> okay so uh they were like how
1: do you want to just display it and um we were talking and I was like, oh, it might be cool to have like an old school like book so it feels, you know, like a leather bound book so it feels like it's part of the exhibit. Yeah. Because um, I don't think touch screen would work for, to accompany art from the 1500s. Right. And so uh, my girlfriend helped me research uh, companies that create those books. So there's a book, um, I think it's in, there's a company in Scotland who um, basically whenever you watch a movie, And they have like the book of old. Yeah. They make that prop book. Yeah. And so um, we, Denver Art Museum was down. We contacted them. They took my story. They printed it in a few pages and then created this prop book. Um, it's like goat skin leather. It's like seven hundred dollars. It's like crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's perfect for the exhibit. Yeah. You know. Um, so it's. Like, so many things have blown my mind. Like, to come from being a child where um, everyone I knew, I mean, other kids thought I was stupid for reading comic books. And then teachers hated that I read comic books. And, like, society at large looked down on comic books. And now, at this age, comic books are uh, the thing that made me a professor, brought me into museums. Two museums, mm-hmm. Denver Art Museum and this one, you yeah. know, to be able to do this podcast with you, like, yeah, uh, and it's led to me doing a TED Talk, like, all these crazy things that um, I just never, like, if I could tell the 10-year-old version of me, all the stuff that comic books would do
0: for me, I don't know that I would believe it. Sure. You know? It almost doesn't sound real. <laughs> right, It's right. like a story from yeah. a book. Right. Yeah. Like a comic book. Yeah. So, <laughs> you've had this meteoric rise, let's call it, um... <laughs> and you're publishing your own stories. Uh, you've got newer books coming mm. out. You've got the Anguish Garden yeah. series, um, which I've been reading, so oh. thank you for those copies. Nice. Um, I've been enjoying it a lot. Mm. And myself being a comic book lover, yeah. uh, I am curious, you know, you try to reach out to the big names in comic books and to no avail. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, if you had the opportunity to write for one of these big names, if you wanted to, mm-hmm. who would you choose? Oh, that's an interesting question.
1: Well, okay, so for me, um, all all my comics typically have some kind of like social commentary, or like my art is my way of contributing to a better world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my only interest in expanding my reach or fame is, you know, one, so I can take care of my family, stuff like that, but but really to have a greater positive impact on the world, to mm-hmm. reach the art to reach the world with my art. If I could do it like Banksy, you know, I sure would. Be
0: completely anonymous. Yes.
1: But uh, you know, it doesn't seem like in the cars for me. So um my interest in writing for say like a Marvel or DC is is that, like, creating a bigger platform to tell the stories I want to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, uh, if I were choosing between Marvel and DC, huh, that's interesting. I think my first, the first comics I really got into were DC. Mm -hmm. Most people, I think, would say Marvel, I Mm -hmm. feel like. But uh, I feel like I love Marvel. I love both. But they're different. Like, uh, DC's, Brian Michael Bendis, in an interview I read years ago, he essentially said that the DC comics are about the mask and the Marvel comics are about the people under the mask, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, Because he's like, it doesn't matter how you write Clark, it matters how you write Superman. Right. Um, But with Spider-Man, it doesn't matter how you write Spider-Man, it matters how you write Peter Parker. Right. So that was really interesting. Um, So I think d c characters will be are are more interesting to me because because there's a lot more room to define things with them mm-hmm. that haven't been uh personalities and experiences that haven't been defined, yeah like Tom King right now is doing an interesting thing with like you know c level d c characters yeah, and you know you get really cool stories. There's a guy, Mr. Terrific. You familiar with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. very
0: okay. much so. so. So, for me, like one of the things that I've always made sure that I've done is know about like the black and brown characters yeah. in yeah. these comics. I've always wanted to see myself. Uh, nice. Yeah. So, Mr. Terrific. Right. Definitely, definitely. So, okay. Mr. Terrific, I feel like, uh,
1: is often used poorly. Um, he has such an audacious, ridiculous name. Like yeah. He, Uh, But he's named after No Fear. Right. So he's named after. Fair play. (laughs) Right. So he's named after a a Golden Age character who was also Mr. Terrific. It was a white character. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this Mr. Terrific is supposedly inspired by that Mr. Terrific, right? Um, And there was a. When they did the new 52, there was a Mr. Terrific series that I didn't really care for. Um, But every issue, it was like. I'm the third smartest man in the in the world or whatever, right? <laughs> and it's so ridiculous for him to say it. Like how is that judge? Did you yeah. take a test? Like what is that, right? Yeah. And so I would I would really love to write him like Fraser
0: Oh, interesting.
1: because the arrogance that it requires to call yourself Mr. Terrific and to announce that you're the third smartest man in the world I think could be really fun. Yeah. You know, it could be like a comedy adventure. And in
0: many iterations, a tech billionaire of sorts. uh, Some sort of really a visionary type of person, large personality. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he's black Tony Stark in a lot of ways. Yeah. But yeah, so like I think it could be a a fun kind of thing, especially if you had somebody who wasn't as pretentious as him but Mm -hmm. was smarter. Hmm. You know, like that would really burn him up.
0: As like as like a foil as his adversary. Uh, I I think uh,
1: a comedic foil. So it could be like his cousin who's oh, like, sure. who's like real hood yeah you know what I'm saying yeah. So it doesn't like uh, play into the social conventions. He plays into, but uh-huh. is clearly smarter than him. Yeah, because if he says he's the third smartest man in the world, then there is a two and there's a one. Right. You know, so like if the cousin's number two, like that <laughs> would just burn him up. Yeah, and I think that could be really fun. So like that's an example of what I think could be fun with DC characters, because there's so many of them are just um, a costume and an idea for powers. Mm-hmm.
0: A mantle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so, like, you know, whereas Marvel, I think, has spent more time investing into the personality of their characters. Mm-hmm. So there's not as many that you can pick and be like, just do your own thing with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you know, I guess one thing that I associate with, like, masks and comics and things, there's always you know, a mask is like a shield, it's like a protector, Uh, it's a way to maybe disguise yourself, protect yourself, Hmm. Um, it evokes ideas of fear for me, and obviously Hmm. it wouldn't be an episode of How Art is Born um, if I didn't ask you about um, how you deal with fear, maybe perhaps how you've dealt with fear in uh, your comics writing career thus far. that rhyme by the way. Oh, I did. MC skills. <laughs> Poet and I didn't know it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, yeah,
1: so I definitely feel fear. I'm wired differently than a lot of people, I think, because I feel most of my fear after I'm done. Uh, mm. So I don't feel it during the process. I feel it right when it's done. Then I'm like, it's time to submit. No, it's terrible. Like, it hits me all right Yeah. There. So like I mentioned earlier that I just finished this uh, movie script. Mm-hmm like, working on the thing, I'm like, yeah, this is fun, this is good, blah, blah, blah. And then at the point where I'm supposed to send it to the other producers, I'm like,
0: not Not really. Yeah. Uh,
1: And what I've, I don't know, what I've learned from myself is there's nothing wrong with me for feeling fear. It's just part of the process. And if I embrace it as part of the process, it means that it doesn't stop me. So, like, I feel the fear, and I still send it. You know, I still send Mm -hmm. it to the printer. I still send it to the producers. I still send it to the artist. um, And then eventually it goes away, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of us are constantly trying to talk ourselves out of fear or pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But you can't really do that. Like, what fear tells you isn't true, but it still is there. It exists. Right. So uh, one of the saddest things in my life is that I know so many brilliant artists of different different disciplines who will never put anything out because they're so afraid, you know. Um, I feel like the world is being robbed of beauty. And so I did spend some time studying fear and put together, like, this workshop seminar to, like, teach people how to manage fear. And it's something I've been teaching here and there. I teach it at Regis. I teach it at Lighthouse. Um, I'll be teaching it at Regis tomorrow in fact oh yeah. wonderful uh and also uh we're doing a video of it like uh i have a it's it's oh i guess it's done now it's just we're gonna premiere it soon but like uh just a video because i i basically i wanted other creative people to have something to be like these are ways to walk through fear and still create by art. because i think we just i don't know i feel like most of the advice is just like you just got to keep going. You just got to ignore it. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's you have to manage it.
0: Yeah, it can't just be that simple, right? Right,
1: right. You got to do something to yeah. get, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's basically just ways to help people. But, like, for myself, it's really, like, fear is is a constant companion. And instead of trying to deny it, just accept that it's there and move forward.
0: Yeah, I love that. and. You know, I think I'm going to try to employ that in my own life. Yeah. I think, you know, f- fear for me mostly manifests in, like, imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, yeah, the fear of putting things out. How will it be accepted? I usually will feel good about things as I'm working on them. But yeah. when it's done, then it may just stay on a hard drive or in a file on my computer or on my phone. It happens
1: so much. Ma- that's, that's the tragedy, right? But here's the other thing with imposter syndrome. Like, I look at, you know, all of us, anybody who's creative has opinions about the art that comes out. Right. And, you know, we might not say names, but all of us have something where we're like, that is garbage. Why is that out? (laughs) Right. But for me, it's like, okay, if I think that that thing is garbage and those people are not ashamed to put that out, Mm -hmm. then why am I ashamed to put my stuff out? Yeah, what's stopping me? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think we're all imposters in terms of however imposter syndrome is defined. Mm-hmm. because nobody has done something until they've done it. Right. But for some reason we feel like there are people who have like the real knowledge, like they're the real people. There's a story about Robert Kirkman that I, I may have told this podcast, I don't know, but uh so Robert Kirkman's creator of The Walking Dead, um mm-hmm. he created the comic book and he created Invincible and you know, he's done a lot of big stuff. But when he was pitching uh Walking Dead the comic to image at that time horror had not sold well in comics for about 30 40 years so the editor is like well you know man i don't know about zombies like they they usually don't sell and so kirkman's like oh i forgot to tell you the hook uh, the zombies are an advanced team for invading aliens so <laughs> yeah so the editor's like huh okay well, let's try that yeah so then the book comes out six months later it's doing well editor comes back to Kirkman. He's like, hey man, I'm, I'm glad Walking Dead's coming? doing good. Yes. But he's like, I don't see anything about the aliens. And Kirkman's like, oh, I just made that up so you would print it. You know? <laughs> what a legend. Right. Now it says something about his audacity. Yeah. But I think it also says like, um, everybody's making their best guess. Mm-hmm. Like the editor, the gatekeeper, whoever it is, they may have some knowledge about their profession. They certainly do. But they don't know what's going to be a success or what's not. Right. You know, like, how many people turned down the Beatles or or like I know for a fact that Dune um, that he could get nobody to publish it mm-hmm. nobody would publish Dune mm-hmm. um, and eventually what he did was he got a company that printed auto manuals to publish it
0: wow yeah. yeah
1: and so like and that book you know however many decades later all these movies you know yeah yeah so I mean, now ev-
0: Dune is in the zeitgeist. Right, right. Yeah,
1: and it might not have been if he had listened to all those people. Right. So I think, you know, like people, everybody's making their best guess. So if we feel like an imposter, like you know, there may be things to work on as an artist, and you know, we can accept uh, feedback, mm-hmm. which I think is healthy. But I think um, there's really no such thing as an imposter. Like everybody is just trying. Everybody has to do something. A first time. Yeah. You know, so like what yeah. does it even mean to be an imposter? Like who's the real person? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Unless it's in that spy sense. He is an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, Alan, it's been an amazing conversation with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we've had an opportunity to have it. Um so before we close up, um, I just want to hear from you about uh what's on the horizon. Um, and then, of course, we have to hear about your your geeky pleasures. What are you into lately? It's
1: almost like you produced this show or something.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I right. might know a thing or two. Right. Yeah, you know how it goes. I'm just flying off the cuff right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh,
1: I mentioned the movie thing uh, that actually came from somebody I knew from the dance floor too. Uh, it is spiritually the sequel to the breakin' movies from the '80s. Uh, Boogaloo Shrimp, who played Turbo in those movies, he's mm-hmm. attached. So if we can get the rights, it'll be Breaking Three, of nine. It's going to be its own movie, Beyond Street Cred. It's all already on IMDb as Beyond Street Cred. Okay. Um, so th- I just finished the script for that, so I'm excited about that. Um, I am launching a Webtoons comic. Are you familiar with Webtoons? Uh, loosely. Okay. Yeah. So it's where uh, I would say most young people in the world get their comics because it's free yeah they're all designed for scrolling on the phone yeah so it's it'd be hard to adapt a existing comic and put it into that format because it has to be
0: that square right it has to already fit the uh the dimensions there you got it
1: yeah so um i'm doing that one with an artist in bangladesh named Sachi chakma and uh an artist here lani mf allen is gonna do the colors Uh uh-huh that one's called the drug dealer's ghost
0: oh interesting It's a
1: good reaction to that
0: yeah I mean, no i like I, I i like that i like that
1: i'll tell you briefly the idea is basically you know the scene that you see in movies it's always the scene where like the drug kingpin is about to take out one of his uh lackeys mm-hmm. and that guy is like uh you know tied up hands behind his back on his knees the drug kingpin is holding the gun and the kingpin is like you know this has to be done Yeah, and the person who's I don't have a choice. Yes,
0: you you you're making me do this. You've seen it, right? Oh, yeah.
1: And the person who's about to die is like, just promise me my family will be safe, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We've seen that scene dozens of times, right? The idea of this comic is, uh, the guy gets executed. He's in the afterlife. He's chilling, and then he sees one of his family members,
0: and they're not doing well.
1: They're in the afterlife, so they've been killed. The kingpin did not keep their promise. So now this story is about him figuring out how to go back to Earth and take his revenge yeah. on the kingpin who killed his family. Yeah. Um, and strangely, it's a comedy. I, I'm not. I don't think I explained it well. As a comedy, well but it's a
0: comedy. yeah, I can. I can see some dark humor coming <laughs> yeah. out of this whole supernatural uh, setting.
1: Yeah, you're right. So uh, the character designs have happened. Uh, I got a logo, and um, I've written it. So now I'm just gonna try and get a few episodes in place. Before we get them on Webtoon. So I'm excited about that one. Yeah. And uh, I think, I know I'm gonna write another graphic novel this year. I just yeah. don't know what it is yet. Oh, yeah, Bernie Metronome 2 is Being Colored.
0: Oh, cool. Part yeah. 2. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Uh, I have a Patreon. I'm teaching, uh, I'm gonna start teaching classes, comic book writing classes on the Patreon for people who um, can't afford like a university thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And also, for $5 a month, people can get on, and I'm about to start Patreon exclusive comics. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's one that I wrote that an uh, artist in Florida's doing for me, He's his name's Aries, and that one you'll only be able to get on Patreon until, mm-hmm. and I'll post like a page a week and
0: stuff mm-hmm. like that,
1: so. So, yeah. Cool. Right on, and then there was.
0: The geeky pleasure, oh, yeah. Where are you, you into? What's bringing you joy? Well,
1: there's always Weird Al, but we've, we've, <laughs> we've covered that extensively. <laughs> I watched something ridiculous lately. What was it? The two guys who are from Chicago who make a show called South Side, which is set in the South Side of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh have you seen it?
0: Uh I haven't seen it, but I am aware of it.
1: It's really funny. It's good. I like guess it's like surprisingly good. It reminds me uh it re- okay, so it's hood and intelligent, mm-hmm. which is basically how I grew up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah. Um it's not like this uh monolithic view of black people it's like a whole bunch of people with strong personalities mm-hmm. um and it's yeah it's really fun and then those same guys also do a show called sherman showcase okay it's a mockumentary
0: oh i love like i love a good yeah? mockumentary okay
1: of a fake soul train show yeah so uh and the the music of the imaginary artist on the fake soul train show mm-hmm. Uh, Fonte Coleman is one of the composers. Oh, dope! Yeah, uh,
0: from Little Brother. Yep. Yeah.
1: And, and uh, Foreign Exchange. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that that was really funny and silly. Uh, I'm enjoying that. Uh, one of the actors from there was on it was in the Top Gun sequel.
0: Oh, Jay Ellis. N- I don't know their names. He's tall, tall guy played Lawrence in Insecure as well. Oh no no. Oh, a different one. No,
1: uh, it's a sh- shorter, kind of portly brother. One of them, is named like Diallo, like they had those kind of names. Oh, I can't okay. remember. But, but yeah, so he was in there, and uh, while he was filming it, he told Tom Cruise about their shows, and Tom Cruise liked Southside. Yeah, and then called into the writers' room to tell him how much he liked the show. Wow, yeah, hey, so that's you got the cool.
0: co-sign from Tom Cruise that <laughs> right. goes a long way in Hollywood. Seriously, yeah,
1: yeah. So no, I'm really digging those shows, and uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I tend to like a lot of silly stuff because I write a lot of heart stuff but um yeah oh oh glass onion i really love glass onion glass
0: onion was great i I thought that i thought that that was a great it's not a sequel necessarily i mean you still got your main character right um but uh, yeah i thought that was a great way of you know doing another sort of knives out thing yeah and not Replaying all the same beats, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: I really enjoyed both of those Knives Out movies. That was inspiring to me, uh, just in terms of how he could take what was familiar and flip it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan Johnson, yeah, you know, writing and directing he could take, yeah, take familiar beats and make them fun and fresh, and have such engaging characters. I really, I really enjoyed
0: watching that movie.
1: And I was like, you know, I know a lot of people don't like a Star Wars movie. You know, that's...
0: Yeah, it's hotly contested It is a, a topic of controversy right. I feel in like Star Wars fans, any nerdy room, right. for
1: sure. But Star Wars fans hate everything, So uh, yes. with the exception of The Mandalorian, like for the most part.
0: Right. Like that's Star- why I struggle to identify as a Star Wars fan, yeah. because I don't want to be right. lumped in with all those yeah. terrible incels, but... <laughs> yeah, that is the extreme,
1: right? But... uh so I really like that, and he did a movie. Ryan Johnson did a movie called Brick back in the day, okay, which I had seen years ago, and I did not like it. And then I watched it again after watching Glass Onion. Like maybe I'll like it now. No, I don't like it. <laughs> but what, but what it what it does for me is like okay, he made this movie I did not like, yeah, and was able to grow into the person who did these movies that I love, mm-hmm. and that's inspiring to me as a creator. Yeah. That was my long answer to that.
0: Wow, that's <laughs> dope. Well, now I have some things on my list, and hopefully, some listeners have some things on their list to check out as well. Right on. Cool. Well, Alan, thank you so much uh, for being our guest today <laughs> on How Art Is Born for this special honest episode. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you. Special, special thank you to today's guest, our Alan Brooks. Uh, Thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to subscribe to How Art is Born wherever you get your podcasts for more episodes. Share it with a friend if you can as well. And if you can, leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MCA Denver on YouTube and subscribe there too for behind-the-scenes clips from today's episode. And don't forget to visit MCA Denver's current exhibition, The Dirty South, which is only on view for a few more weeks. It will be leaving us... um, Sunday, February 5th, so come by while you still can.